Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. Man, it is a surreal trip to see the once seventh grader who I served Ego waffles to in her own house the first time I visited. That's Miss Erin, my wife's sister, uh, as the children's ministry director. Uh, you know, we're peers, we're siblings, but I still uh, am a big brother, too, uh, and I'm proud of her. Um, we're in the middle of this quick stroll through Genesis and Exodus, and Barbara just started us, started us off in Exodus. Over a decade ago, I was reading this passage in the youth group. During a year when we read through and retold stories from most of the Old Testament, and it was not a quick stroll at all, not even close. But that night, we read Exodus 1 and 2, and I asked the groups of students and the volunteers to imagine a propaganda poster for the story from the perspective of Pharaoh or the Hebrew midwives. And one poster we got back, I'll never forget, it's today's sermon title, led by Brian Heath. The poster read, She Brews, Not Hebrews. And it was, the imagery was dark. I asked him if he had a, a picture of it, and, but it's lost to history. Such a memorable line, but hiding a monstrous thing in that rhyme. Now that I've said it, maybe you'll remember this story that way. But then the story narrows into the life of just one family, which is where we turn to with our second lesson this morning from Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Just making sure that I have the right notes. Okay. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then the child's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called her mother the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became Pharaoh's daughter's son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, you have gathered generations, centuries of generations to hear this story, to make sense of it. Lord, help us to learn from you today something 
from this story, from these words. And God, as if you are inside and outside of time, we lift up a prayer for the Israelites in that time. Ease the suffering. Bless them. Bless us as we consider your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes I like to believe that God being bigger than our linear existence will hear a prayer even for the past. So, But let's review. A head of state with religious cult-like power, king of Egypt, scapegoats a specific ethnic group, confines them together, puts them to hard labor, recruits collaborators to eliminate them, but when that's not a final solution, the leader enlists his entire population to the task of drowning babies. One particular baby survives on the cunning action and kindness of women. And it's his story that the book of Exodus follows. The boy who lived, Moses. I like to dip into the past a lot today because nine years ago, this very weekend, I preached on this same text, which is weird because I don't preach that often, but it's part of the three-year lectionary cycle uh, of our scriptures, which we occasionally use, but often at the end of summer. What was happening nine years ago this weekend? Well, Theo Watermolder was a newborn just home from the hospital with Lisa. My wife, Jane, was 23 weeks pregnant with our daughter, Lucy. And look at those cuties a few years after that. Oh, yeah. Anytime they come up together in church, that's the picture I go to, for sure. But that same week, longtime church member and matriarch, my coworker and friend, Norma Rose, had just received word that the strange illness that had turned her skin yellow in mid-July was in fact terminal pancreatic cancer. She got to see baby Theo well and healthy, but she would be gone by late September. And that day, in the midst of those competing stories, I quoted an author and a comic book legend, Neil Gaiman, saying, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. Fairy tale, journey of the hero stories like Moses, a boy who grows up adopted into another family and then discovers that he's different and special and then has to stop the Death Star or you know who or save his people. These stories give us hope that the dragons of cancer and authoritarianism can be defeated. And they can. But this morning, I want to consider things from a different angle, and this is a warning. We're going to stay down a while, because sometimes the dragons do win for a while. We're going to sit a few minutes with what God's people have been through. Did you, get ever, did you ever get told to put on your thinking cap in school? Was that a, that a thing for you, or was it just my teachers? I, I don't know. Uh, well, I want you to put in your empathy hearts and feel this along with me. The Israelites are in Egypt. They were displaced by famine from their own land, and they had to take shelter in the land of the superpower, 
Egypt. And it wasn't a year. It became, it became centuries. Can you imagine the feelings of loss and disconnection for them because they aren't in their own place? Maybe that's familiar to some of you. And then after several generations, their loss of homeland gets paired with a loss of dignity and freedom. The Egyptian king suggests they're a national security risk, blaming them for societal problems and the imposing hard labor and taskmasters. Can you imagine the bitterness, the confusion the Israelites might feel about these changes? There would be a flood of emotions. There would be a lot of feelings. But you'd usually be too tired, too worn out. Who's got time to feel when you're worked to the bone? There's this amazing book that high school and college students get assigned more now than in the past called Kindred by Octavia Butler. And if you've read it or if you've heard about it, it's a book that will take you from the present into antebellum slavery. And a person from our time is brought back into that time. And as a black woman in, the, in 1976, she's free, but she's not back in time. And I think that's a book that can help us get into a mindset of loss, of freedom and dignity. And it's a powerful book. I recommend it. But this story, this wasn't enough for the king of Egypt. Erasing the Hebrews becomes the goal. And it begins with the baby boys. Baby boys grow up to be men who become fathers. No men. And the Hebrew women can be forced to assimilate with Egypt. That's putting it mildly. There's, there's already a lot that the people are dealing with. And then imagine you find yourself pregnant under this regime. The joy of potential parenthood is replaced with looming dread because the state can and will take, make choices about your family planning. It will. And that sounds like 40 weeks of terror and uncertainty and ambiguity to me. Even if you have a girl, will she grow up forced to be an Egyptian? If your child survives, how does your neighbor feel about that? And there's hope for a moment. While at first the Shebrews, not Hebrews policy is quietly resisted by the healthcare providers, Shipra and Prua, Pharaoh ultimately opens up this ethnic cleansing policy to his subjects. Throw every baby boy into the Nile. Have I ruined your day yet? Uh, I had to stop writing here for, well, all of last weekend because my eyes would get watery trying to put myself in the Israelite sandals. Tragedy just piles on. And there's a reason we read this chapter as the background for the Moses story rather than sitting with it. It's beyond comprehension. Loss of identity, loss of freedom, that's bad enough. Loss of children and future, that's too much. 
And yet Moses' mother hides him for three months because it was happening. What is left unsaid in this story between Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 is how many children were lost. Scripture is silent on how long this went on and who didn't make it. Scripture's authors did not have words for it. It's good news that Moses is saved, but that wasn't every family's story. Now, I know there are many of us who are grieving or struggling presently. I just heard about a very close loss this morning. Mourning a loved one, grieving in sickness, dealing with job loss or a broken relationship or loss of identity. There are aches and pains and wounds that will never quite heal. And I am not trying to beat you up with this sad story. We are a people of hope, just like Pastor Dave said in his sermon last week. And we know that this story doesn't end here in Egypt for God's people. If you are a person grieving right now, please remember that dragons can be overcome. God's love wins. If you are someone who is grieving any sort of loss, know that God is with you. God hears your cries. God can take whatever you need to say, no matter how angry. God has not abandoned you. There is a way forward. But you know, some of us are pretty okay at the moment. And maybe it's just like three of us, but we're fortunate. Maybe, like me, you take God's grace for granted. And when we're in a comfortable place, we don't always know how to respond to the deeply felt emotions of people who are struggling. We're not prepared for those feelings when we have them ourselves. So I wanted us to sit with Exodus 1 this morning without jumping too fast into the early life of Moses because being okay with those uncomfortable feelings can stretch us, help grow our empathy and awareness for grief in the world, help us to imagine what others are going through. Because this is a story from long ago. You can feel along with God's people, and that's all you really have to do. You're not responsible for helping any person in the present as you hear this story. You won't be overwhelmed by their real need. It won't be awkward if you say the wrong thing. All I ask, at least for another two pages of this sermon, is that you not look away from how you would feel if you were a Hebrew family in Egypt. I'm guessing you'd probably ask why. It's natural to ask why. Why would God allow this? Why does this happen in a universe created by God? For me, there isn't yet an answer that really satisfies. Not in immediate grief and not 3,300 years after Moses' time. If we have lost something or someone important to us, we will probably ask why, because we have no other words in our rage and our despair and our fear. But it's appropriate to ask why, of course, because God can endure all our doubts and questions. And I think 
If we're asking why, part of us is asking because we still trust that God is good. Otherwise, why would we ask? In the part that we have read, God is silent. And God's silence, which the Hebrews knew well, may be a reminder that even our Creator doesn't always have words in the midst of our suffering, even as we believe God suffers alongside us. It's hard to remember in moments of deep sadness and just as hard to believe it when we see others suffering, but nonetheless, remember we have a God who, suf who suffers with us and has suffered among humankind. God knows the pain of losing a child, right? Authors Mitchell and Anderson write, in the midst of the distress of loss, it is comforting to remember that God suffers. It is equally important to demonstrate God's suffering love by our willingness to listen to suffering and grief and not give in to the impulse to run from the pain, shut off the complaint, or respond too quickly with pious platitudes. We need to avoid the rush to meaning in any form, for living through grief requires an ability to tolerate unanswered questions. We can be there for others in God's name, and we show God's love by not running from the pain of others. As we stare down the dragons, it really is tempting to rush to make sense of things for others and for ourselves. Even the metaphor of dragons says that. But making sense of things comes later. We can demonstrate God's suffering love when we listen and don't rush to meaning. And later, we can demonstrate God's resurrection love when it's time to help write a new story. If you think about Shipra and Pua for a moment, the Hebrew midwives, they absolutely could have run from the pain of others or from their own pain, their own fear. In an incredible crisis, they're named heroes who did the work on behalf of their people and, you know, shaded the truth a little bit on the way. That was good. Even in the midst of the inexplicable, they demonstrate God's suffering love alongside their people, giving their life new meaning. So I've been sitting with this story alone in my thoughts for probably too long now, and I've often wondered how they endured. How did the Israelites make it? And if they hadn't, of course, we wouldn't be here. So they did. What's become clear to me and is likely obvious to you is this. They did not endure these hardships alone. This was not a private grief. This was an entire people suffering together, whether you lost a child to the Nile or not, whether you were beaten by the taskmasters or not. This was a lament beyond a single family or neighborhood. It was a crucible that formed a nation. And the stories we've inherited in the Torah, the five books of Moses, they are the result of communal effort to process the losses endured and to make new meaning as God led them out towards the promised land. The text, our scripture, tolerates so many unanswered questions, leaves plenty unwritten, and follows God out of Egypt. These stories can help us relate to one another, to people across the globe. They can stretch us, 
rebuke us, train us in righteousness, but they don't deliver a formula of how to help or how to grieve or how to endure. There's no step-by-step process for loss and no formula for survival, except we can't do it alone. Community is one of the gifts God gives us as God's people. God may be silent as in Exodus 1 and 2, but God's people need not be silent. If we're in pain, one challenge is being open to talking about our pain and to receiving help, however imperfect it might be. If we're doing all right, one challenge is being open to listening to the pain of others, bearing them up and not trying to solve anything. Wherever we're at, whoever we are, we do so in community. This morning, I've been digging a deep, deep hole. All week, I've been digging this hole, sitting with this text, because I wanted, to sit, I wanted us to sit with the Hebrews' grief. And truthfully, I didn't know if I was going to get us out. Risky and foolish move, I know. But I was imagining this actual pit that I've been digging, and, and then I imagined a door. It was weird. A door for us to open together. A doorway to sharing or listening or both. A doorway to bear burdens and grief together. A doorway to deeper community. Eventually, We've got to open it and pass through and ultimately let God lead us out of Egypt. Hear our cries, O God. Lead us on. Amen.